Good morning. How are we doing? Good? All right. I'm doing good. It's great to see all of you here today. It's great to be here. Um, my name is Michael Clary, and I am the pastor of Christ the King Church. We're down in the Clifton area, if you know Cincinnati. We're really close to the University of Cincinnati, downtown, about 30 minutes from here. I first met Michael Foster in 2007. I won't tell you that story here, but you can ask me about it later if you'd like. Um, as with Michael, it, he's always memorable, and uh, that, ex that experience was memorable. But my wife and I were visiting Cincinnati because we were considering where to plant a church. And so we uh, connected with Michael and Emily here. And uh, I'll never forget, this was about 2008 when we decided to move here and we moved here, but we didn't know anyone. So it was like a parachute into an unfamiliar place kind of church plant. And uh, we didn't have a plan for how to unload our truck. Um, we had like a, had a couple kids and we were moving from one house to another. So it was like a you know, pretty big U-Haul. And uh, Michael showed up with some dudes from the church he was planning at the time and um, helped us move in. And I think the Priors, I don't know if it was both uh, David and John Pryor, but um, at least one of them was there. Uh, their wives were there to help. And so it really, that really solidified his heart and a friendship that has lasted to this day. Um, so we started a planning a church in um, 2009, in January, and spent about a year, year and a half or so, we were uh, building a core group. And we launched officially in 2010. And so 2010, this is during the height of Young, Restless, and Reformed, the Gospel Coalition, Acts 29, Tim Keller, John Piper. And I was trained in all those tools. And I'd learned how to use all of these tools. And those tools were great for that time, but those tools are not necessarily what we need for today. But our church grew fast, and it, and, and it was, God blessed it. We had a building that was given to us. Um, a few years later, we planted another church, a sister church in another part of town, and uh, they're still going well. We have uh, some friends here from Christ the King Church Eastern Hills in Madisonville, and they were given a building, so both of us were given buildings by other churches. So this was uh, 13 years ago. So we planted our church during Obama's first term. And then we continued doing ministry through the last 13 years. So we had 2016, Donald Trump and all of the, the, the turmoil in, our, in that election. And then we had 2020 hit with COVID and all the turmoil of that election. And then all the COVID stuff. And then add to that, you've got Black Lives Matter and uh, critical race theory and you've got cities burning in our country. And add to that, you've got things that are, that are new, like LGBTQ, activism, transgenderism, which wasn't on anybody's radar 15 years ago, and now it's everywhere. You can't get away from it. So it's not the same world now that it was when I first planted in 2010. It's, it's different now. Um, you'll hear from Aaron Wren later today, and he developed this uh, framework of positive world, neutral world, negative world. And... We planted our church in neutral world where you could expect a neutral public square where Christian ideas and Christian messages were given equal, uh, given a fair hearing. But now we've moved into what he calls negative world where Christian ideas are not welcome in the public square. And so that's, that's imposed a change on the way churches operate because of the way our message is received in the world. 
And a lot of churches are unprepared for this moment, for where we are now, and for where things might head in the future. One of the biggest problems that churches have right now is they simply lack courage. Because we haven't really needed to have courage and to show courage in the past the way we do now. It's different. What we need now is churches that have a backbone, churches with a spine. And whenever you're planting a church, we need to plant churches that have a spine. Churches that are bold, they're unafraid, they're unembarrassed of what we believe, and they're unashamed to say it out loud. 20 years ago, that wasn't, a, that wasn't as big of a deal. But now, if you're just preaching the most mundane, normal Christian sermon about a controversial topic in our day, you're going to get heat for it. And I'm not just talking about pastors. I'm talking about churches, entire churches that need to be courageous. So that's my talk today. Let me read a scripture uh, from Matthew 21. It's the parable of the tenants. So Matthew 21, I'm going to pick it up in verse 33. Here another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went to another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get its fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When, therefore, the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. This is the word of the Lord. Jesus told this parable about the unfaithful ruling class of Israel. And as Michael did last night, I'll do today. We're not going to exegete and exposit this text. Trust me, I've done the exegesis, I've done the work, but I want to go directly to applying the principles of this text to the church. The mission of the church is what? Make disciples, right? Make disciples, reaching people for Christ, teaching people to obey Christ, and all this for the glory of God. That's the core mission of the church. And just as the mission, the, the work of God in the Old Testament was threatened by unfaithful tenants, the same can happen in the church, where the church's mission can be jeopardized by unfaithful tenants who want to take control of the vineyard and use it for their own purposes. This can happen to any conservative institution. This is just a fact of the way institutions operate. Once you have bad leaders that seize control of the levers of power within an institution, it's almost impossible to turn it back. And it's become so common. We see this all the time, especially in today's world, 
But it's not inevitable if churches are prepared and take measures. They take action in advance to anticipate that and to resist it. That means that to do this, we will need churches that have courage. Courage to resist those, those liberalizing impulses. Those tendencies that can happen in any institution. I'm talking about we need churches that have a spine. That have a skeletal structure that is rigid and firm and is not going to just kind of morph itself into whatever pressures are applied to it. I've got three points. It's not exhaustive, but these are three things that rise to the top in my mind of what churches need to do to, uh, to have courage, to have a spine. And even though I wrote these churches, or wrote these points thinking specifically about church planting, you'll find that this applies um, to really any church. You'll find, you'll find value in any church setting. Three points are these. Cultivate a courageous culture, a plain spoken pulpit ministry, and appoint elders with guts. Here we go. Let's start with the first one. Cultivate a culture of courage. Every church has a culture. This conference has a culture. Uh, any room that you walk into that's gathered for some purpose, there's going to be some culture about it. And the culture includes the unspoken, unwritten values and beliefs the norms, the expectations, the behaviors, all of that comprise a culture within a group of people. So school teachers will often talk about a hidden curriculum. So you've got the curriculum that you hand out and that you're on your syllabus, but there's a hidden curriculum where social pressures within a school can direct behavior of the students. So the hidden curriculum will be your unofficial, unwritten, or even unintended rules that govern the life of a church. You know, last night, uh, Michael was talking about how not even, uh, they, is not even on purpose, just by accident, just by the fact of a few things that, that happened, they became the home birth church. Like, how do you become a home birth church? It's not like it's on your mission statement. It's like you, you know, you have a picture of a home birth on your website. You might come here if you want to give birth to your babies at home. We're your home birth church. But nevertheless, that's what people thought. And it, and it happened because of these subtle little cues that people were absorbing from the pastor. And they thought, oh, that's the way I'm supposed to do it. And that's culture. It, it's, it's, it shapes the way people think. Now, you might think, well, we've got our doctrinal statements. That doesn't matter. Your culture is not your doctrinal statements. A lot of people don't even read those anyway. <laughs> I mean, let's be honest. A lot of people don't even read them. But if you say, well, we've got our doctrinal statements. and We are Westminster. We are London Baptist Confession of Faith. Good for you. Your, your church doesn't necessarily absorb a culture from that. You have these churches that will say, we're Westminster, we're London Baptist, and they have women pastors. They're teaching critical theory in their Sunday school. That's culture. Your doctrinal statements are only as useful as what your culture will enforce. So here's the thing. Culture eats doctrine for breakfast. Culture is what your church is really about, not just what's written on your doctrinal statement. The culture of your church is what people intuitively absorb when they walk in. And I, I hardly ever hear pastors or church leaders or ministry leaders talk about the value and importance of culture. 
We hear a lot about doctrine. We hear a lot about practices. But doctrine and practices and, and subtle things, the way people dress, the, the way a room is set up, all of these things contribute to a, an intuitive, subconscious culture that's unwritten and unacknowledged. And it is extremely powerful. Culture will dictate things like what you celebrate. What do you frown upon? What are you excited about? Where, where, where do you apply social pressure? Got a, a man, Alex, here. He, he does announcements at our church every Sunday in a, in a prayer before the sermon. And he started doing this thing that um, whenever, you know, a, a woman in our church would give birth to a baby, he would just start the announcement. because, hey, we got a new baby this week. We know let's, we, we want to celebrate so-and-so Smith, you know, was born this week. And everybody just started cheering and clapping every time. And when he did that, I was like, that, that is powerful because he says it, but the reaction from the room becomes a culture reinforcing mechanism that says we celebrate life here. We celebrate babies here. We celebrate marriages here. We celebrate households here. And then people that come in, that that may not be their values. They may be a baby Christian, but they absorb that. They're like, okay, I can either choose to opt in and embrace the values of this church, or even though I haven't read it on a doctrinal statement, I see that that clues me in that this is the kind of church that they are. Maybe some people say, I don't want to be a part of that church. And if you're not about babies, if you're not about loving life, then, and if you're not willing to repent, then I don't want you part of my church. And I'm glad that the culture reinforces that. So if you want a church with a spine... You can't just get your elders together and say, okay, uh, you know, Elder Jones, I need you to write us a white paper on courage. All right, church, here's our white paper on courage. Let's move on. It just doesn't work that way. You have to have social pressure and culture reinforcing activities and things that happen at the intuitive subconscious level that reinforce that you are about being courageous. Any church, Plato said this, a, culture, a, a country cultivates what it honors. And it, it's the same for a church. A church cultivates what it celebrates. And so if you want to cultivate a culture of courage, you need to celebrate it. Here's what Jesus said. Matthew 11, verse 5, or excuse me, Matthew chapter 5, verse 11. You know this, the Beatitudes. Jesus said, blessed are you when others revile you. Don't miss the word blessed. You're blessed. This is a blessing. So it's a blessing when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. There's the suffering. There's the need for courage. What does he tell you to do? Rejoice. Be glad. Why? For your reward is great in heaven. An eschatological future-oriented hope that God himself is celebrating your faithfulness in that moment and you are accruing eternal treasure for your faithfulness. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. There's a scene in the movie Goodfellas. I'm not recommending the movie. It's rated R, so I'll get that out of the way. But I did happen to watch it once and I remember this scene, so sue me. <laughs> the movie Goodfellas, and it's, there, there's a story about this teenage kid who gets you know, hooked up with some mobster guys, uh, the, the, the mafia. And they kind of bring him in and they kind of have him doing little, you know, petty crime and stuff for the mob. And uh, eventually, you know, he works his way through the ranks. Well, uh, he, in this one scene when he's a kid, he gets arrested. 
And, you know, he, he doesn't talk to the police. He doesn't rat anybody out. You know, he, he does what he's supposed to do. And so at his arraignment, whenever he's uh, released from police custody, all the mob bosses are gathered there outside the courtroom. And when you're watching this, you're thinking, oh, man, they're going to they're gonna be angry. They're going to be yelling at him. They're going to be, you know, giving him a hard time. And instead, he walks out of the courtroom and you get all these big Italian guys, you know, like, all right. And they're cheering him. They're clapping their hands. They're taking money and they're sticking it in his shirt pocket. And, you know, you have De Niro kind of grabs him by the collar and he says, uh, you got pinched and you took it like a man, you know. <laughs> and that, that's culture. There, there isn't, you know, some mafia uh, handbook that says when somebody gets pinched, you have to go to the courtroom and celebrate it. No, but they were, they were creating culture by saying, when something bad happens to you, here's how you handle it. And they reinforced it with a culture. Jesus said the same thing. When you are reviled, when you are persecuted, when you are slandered, you don't just endure it. Of course you endure it. Every Christian knows that you endure it. But you endure it with a certain posture and attitude. And Jesus says it's joy. Rejoice. Be glad. Now, I'll be straight with you. Reformed Christianity is pretty morose. Are we not a, just kind of a depressing bunch? It's, I mean, it's true. It's like we're, we, we're, we're kind of, we have this sort of self-loathing misery that characterizes our tribe. I mean, I just imagine, you know, a, a preacher preaching about joy. He's like, turn in your Bible. Today, I'm going to preach about the joy of the Lord. I'm like, come on. I mean, I, okay. I love me some John Piper. John Piper has taught me a lot about suffering and about joy theologically. He doesn't seem like a happy man. And that's, that, that is the way a lot of Reformed Christianity, that's the way we think. That's the way we act about joy. Joy is a doctrinal category, but it isn't something that characterizes our being. It's not a culture that when you enter it, you feel joy. When I come into this conference last night, I felt joy. I was like, there's joy in this room. Praise God. Hallelujah. There's, there, is, there is rejoicing. Brian, when you're leading the music, we're singing with joy. We're, we're because we have a victorious God who's big and powerful and sovereign and we're celebrating the might of God, that's powerful, that's joy. And that's the sort of thing that will steal the spine of the people in the church knowing that there is a big God who is powerful, he's sovereign over this, this does not phase him a bit. And so joy in the midst of persecution, that cultivates courage in people, it makes them fearless, it makes them untouchable. You can't, you can't hurt them, ultimately. All right, that's the first point. Here's the second one. Speak plainly in the pulpit. Plain spoken pulpit ministry. This, is, this, this has a culture shaping effect. So we're taking the idea of culture. We're saying here is an important, a key way that you build this culture. Your preaching ministry is the biggest microphone in the church. The loudest voice, if you're familiar with the concept of the Overton window, Preaching ministry sets the Overton window. Some people in your church know what are the subjects that pastor so-and-so won't touch. He doesn't go anywhere near that. And so it's, you're kind of nervous to talk about it because it's a bit of an untouchable subject. Whatever your taboos are in the pulpit will inevitably become your taboos in the pew. People need to see courage in the pulpit 
because otherwise they'll, they'll be weak. A weak and timid pulpit will produce a weak and timid people because they're not seeing it from the biggest stage, the loudest microphone. And it's not, it's not common. I mean, who are our heroes of old? It's, it's bold men, daring men that were fearless in the face of opposition. Those are the men that we write books about. But that kind of courage is, is in short supply nowadays. Modern preachers are trained in the art of sophistry. That is, that is a 30-minute word salads where you say lots of things. Uh, you know, the people listening, it's like, he ain't got nothing to say, but man, he says it beautifully. <laughs> that's, that's what a lot of modern preaching is like. These clever word games that are crafted to avoid saying the hard, blunt thing. And I'm, I want to let you in on a little trade secret here. I'm a pastor. According to science, pastors love respect. Studies have shown. We like to be respected. I'm joking. <laughs> I'm confessing. Pastors, we love to be respected. And we learn real quick within our churches, what are the crowd pleasers and what ticks people off? You know what the, any pastors in this room, you know what I'm talking about. It's like you, you can't, you're looking at your calendar coming up at your preaching schedule. I'm like, oh man, that's going to be a barn burner. They're going to love that one. And then there are other dates you got circled on your calendar and you're like, um, I just suddenly realized I have an out-of-town trip that Sunday and I want to have my associate fill in the pulpit when I get to Ephesians 5 and have to preach about headship and submission. Like, let him preach that one. Let him take the arrows. We want to be the good guy. No, I, nobody wants to be the bad guy. And so whenever preachers preach plainly and we speak directly to the issues of our day that our people are affected with, it's in their workplace, it's in their human resources department, it's everywhere. And if their pastors don't speak about it, if they're silent, then they face these struggles alone without guidance in how to navigate it. Now, you might think, well, they can set up an appointment with me. Great. But they need to hear it from the biggest microphone because that is where culture is made. The culture is made in the pulpit. Culture is not made of the whole church when you're only talking to one person and nobody else gets to hear it. So it needs to be this, this area where everybody is hearing the same thing at the same time and everybody knows that everybody else heard it. That shapes culture. How, how do a lot of pastors speak about homosexuality? They certainly don't sound like the book of Jude when they talk about it. They certainly don't sound like Romans chapter 1. They'll say, homosexuality is less than God's ideal. Really? Is that the best you can come up with? Now, I'm not saying be mean. I'm not, of course, don't hear me saying that, that we're mean to people, but that's not plain spoken. And if, if people hear that's the tone, that's the, that's the way you approach a subject like homosexuality, then what do they think? How, what culture does that create? It creates an issue where this is kind of an untouchable kid glove sin in our church. We, we, we don't confront that the way we might confront, you know, abuse or something else that everybody agrees is a problem. Culture. 
So nowadays, if you faithfully preach the Bible, just normal Bible, no extra spice, no extra heat in there, just normal, straight down the middle preaching, plain spoken, you're going to, some people are going to think you're nuts. They will. And that, this dynamic can wear a pastor down. So I'm just, I'll just say this, if, if those of you who are not pastors, which I assume is most of you, um, you can serve your pastor well by encouraging him. And by encourage, I mean donate courage. Encourage, give him courage by affirming boldness when you see it. Positively reinforce that, help him, serve him, so he knows he's not speaking to a room full of enemies, snipers that have their rifles trained on him, but say, like, hey, thank you, brother. Thank you, pastor. I needed that. Thank you for being faithful. As a pastor, whenever people do that to me, it always builds me up. You can build up your pastor that way. But it can wear a pastor down whenever, over time, he knows. I mean, pastors know this. I know on my preaching calendar, that's going to be a tough one. Six weeks later, that's going to be a tough one. A month after that, that's going to be a tough one. We know it. Some pastors will comfort themselves thinking, well, I want to soft pedal this to be missional. We have non-believers that we, that we hope will come. We haven't seen one in a couple years, but we hope that they'll come one day. And so in the off chance they might show up, I'm going to say the most gentle, sweetheart thing and not offend anybody. Wouldn't offend anyone. The thing is, is that they've convinced themselves that the way to be missional is to pander to progressive sensitivities. Tell you what, there are unbelieving conservatives too that think the world has gone nuts. So it's not as though pandering to the liberals is going to score you the points that you think it will score you. And while you're doing this, the sheep are starving because they need to hear a word from God. They need to hear God's voice, God's words spoken through a man that has been lit on fire by the Lord. That's what they need. That feeds the sheep, that encourages them, that, that strengthens them. 2 Corinthians 4 verse 2. Here's what Paul said about this sort of pandering I'm talking about. 2 Corinthians 4 2. Paul says, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. Four different descriptors there. Things I refuse to do, Paul says. But by the open statement of the truth, that's what he's all about. We would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. You think Paul is embarrassed about a single verse of Scripture? You think there's anything that he would be afraid to say if he felt like it would be profitable? You'll get Acts 20. Paul says, I did not shrink from declaring anything that would be profitable. And I did not shrink from declaring the whole counsel of God, Paul says. So pastors, hear this. When you step into the pulpit, you're not an entrepreneur you're not a comedian. You're not an influencer. You are a steward of the mysteries of God. You are a herald of the gospel. You are an ambassador for Christ. Christ making his appeal through you. And as you speak, you're waging war against the spiritual forces of darkness that are arrayed against your people and imprisoning them in their sin. You have the words of life to deliver to them. 
So don't water it down. Don't, don't water it down to avoid offending some phantom non-believer who might show up if an unbeliever even is there, if he does show up in that off chance, what they need is an open statement of the truth. That's what will set them free. Not winsome pandering. Don't dull your blade. We know the Bible is a sword, right? Sword of the Spirit. The Bible is a sword. Wield it. Cut with it. Stab souls with it. Think of yourself as a spirit-filled executioner. And what I mean is that you're killing the old man with the truth of the gospel so that the new man can be raised again through faith in Christ. That's what you do when you're preaching. Again, don't hear me saying that it's about me be mean, being mean or harsh. You can go to my website, you can hear my sermons and you can get, get an example of what I'm talking about. In my pulpit, I am gentle. Uh, professorial, some might even say. But when the hard thing needs to be said, we say it. Gentle is not the enemy of plain spoken. So speak plainly about sexuality. Speak plainly about critical theory. Speak plainly about Christianity and the government and tyranny, our duty as citizens. Speak plainly about those things. Do it without apology. Don't be embarrassed of the Bible. Don't let cowards bully you into silence. Speaking of sexuality, my view of sexuality, I would say, is boringly biblical. I had a friend of mine use that term once. It's boringly biblical. There's nothing remotely controversial about my view of sexuality, historically speaking. But historic Christian view of sexuality today is scandalous. By 2023 standards, I'm a fire-breathing fundamentalist. <laughs> Send him back to the Stone Age. He's a dinosaur. That's, that's how we would be judged by today's standards. And so if a gay man comes to our church, what, should we wait? Should it take him two years to ever find out about what the Bible says about his sin? How long, how long should he wait? How long should he sit there being pandered to before we finally get around to the thing, that moment we've been waiting for, this Super Bowl of accountability where we finally confront him in his sin? It's like that's, that's not loving. That, that isn't serving people well. Yes, they will get offended. Yes, people will leave your church. And I think if the Apostle Paul were here, he would say that's a good thing because a little leaven can leaven the whole lump. If you don't deal with it, it's leaven. It stays there. It ferments. It spreads. And now you have a number of people that see one man's sin, one man's issue not being dealt with, and they think that's the way God feels about that issue. It's not that big of a deal. And it spreads. And it may not be other people in the church become gay, but it might be other people in the church think it's not that big a deal. They might even end up saying like, well, God whispers about that kind of thing. He shouts about, you know, greed and, you know, capitalism or something. But God whispers about these things. No. So in our church, what we try to do is try to get, get the controversial issues out in front early put our cards on the table so we're not hiding who we are so that people know this is who we are. So it's in our new member class. In our new member class, we do these online. We re record videos. So we have a, a video that's where we teach biblical manhood and womanhood. We teach about LGBTQ, all related sins. We teach about fornication. 
even talk about cohabiting because there are a lot of Christian couples that don't realize that fornicating and cohabiting is a sin. So it's in our new member class just to make sure if this comes up in your member interview, you're not going to be surprised. Uh, we talk about adultery. And then whenever we're doing premarital counseling, we talk about biblical sexuality again. And we talk about what is God's design for marriage, about headship, about submission. What does that look like in practice? In our wedding ceremony, we insist on traditional wedding vows. We, we have standard boilerplate wedding vows, including the one where the wife says that she commits to obey her husband. And I coach the wife. I'm like, you're going to feel awkward saying this. Your bridesmaids are all going to turn. They're going to be shocked. I'm like, what? What's the matter with you? I'm like, just prepare yourself for that. And, I, and I'd say, like, this, this is good because we're declaring the goodness of God's design to the whole gathered assembly. When you do these things, it helps to bake into your church's culture a courageous posture towards the world. A loving posture, but to not allow yourself to be pressured and bullied by the world. All right, here's the third point. You need to appoint elders with guts. Gutsy elders. The parable of the tenants, as we read earlier, it shows us that the biggest threat to the vineyard is from the tenants. The tenants are the leaders, which in this case would be bad elders. Church planners hear this. If you're looking at planning a church, this is the single biggest and most common mistake church planners make. Appointing the wrong men to be elders is the single biggest and most common mistake church planners make. And it's not one that can be easily undone. Why do you do this? Well, a lot of church planners are young and inexperienced, ambitious, a little naive, and you're desperate for men to come and labor with you. There's a lot of work to do. And also, you're a new church plant, nobody knows you, and you crave legitimacy, which you don't have yet. You meet in an elementary school cafeteria, who are you? In the community's eyes, you have no credibility. And so if you say, here's our elders, it's like, okay, that feels more legitimate, right? That gives you a sense of we're, you know, we have some, some credibility here in our community. And so having a plurality of elders looks good whether they're qualified or not. And so you appoint them too soon or you appoint the wrong men to be elders and you end up with bad elders. And when I see bad elders, don't think about a wolf. Don't think about a heretic. You know, somebody that's going to, you know, teach this rank heresy that's going to be obvious to everyone. I'm talking about, it could be just okay guys that are decent enough men, but they have no business being elders. That's who I'm talking about. Here's what they look like. Bad elders, they can be conflict averse. They see conflict as a sign of disunity. And so they want to run from it and squash conflict as quick as possible. They have this peace at all costs mindset. Sometimes bad elders are business guys, not shepherds, business guys. And they're motivated by things like organizational efficiency, about the bottom line, about nickels and noses and budgets. Sometimes bad elders are ladder climbers. They were the top of their high school class. You know, they were captain of the swim team. They're just used to being at the top of whatever organization they're in, and it makes sense to do the same thing in the church. That does not constitute a calling. 
but they're ladder climbers and so they're used to it. Some elders may act on behalf of their wives. And she loves your church and has a wonderful plan for your church and it's not yours. <laughs> so she's got a mole on the elders board and she's kind of pulling the strings behind the scenes. Some bad elders may act as representatives for a particular constituency within the church. I represent the senior citizens of this church. What about the women of the church? We need to talk about the women here. What about the young folks? We're not going to, this church is going to die if we don't reach more young people. And and what they represent is not the flock. Shepherds care about the flock. Bad elders care about a constituency. And they pit constituencies against one another, and that's how factions can form. Some bad elders may feel superior to the senior pastor, and they see themselves as his boss, and he's accountable to them. It's like he's got to report into them, and they're the ones telling them what to do. They don't work there. They might have an hour's worth of responsibility in the church a month, but they've got the authority of telling the boss or telling the pastor what to do. Sometimes bad elders are bitter at the senior pastor because they think they could do it better. And people come to those elders with complaints about the church, which those elders think, well, that's the senior pastor's fault, and they blame him for them. And the worst kinds of bad elders are the ones that think they're good elders. So their damage is done with a sense of moral certainty. You can't, you can't convince them of anything at that point. And once the wrong guys become elders, that dysfunction trickles down into various aspects of church life. Sidebar. Bylaws are really important. I had this whole section that I cut from this message about bylaws. As boring and uninteresting as that sounds, don't neglect bylaws. You want to have off-ramps, clear, gracious off-ramps for elders, for lay elders. And what that does is that, that gives, uh, uh, gives a, me, a, a means for people to exit without controversy or some kind of scandal. Some guys are just not very good elders and they know it. But if they step down, people are going to wonder what's wrong with Frank. Why is he quitting being an elder? Nobody else has quit. He must be looking at porn. That's what it is. You know, it's like you don't want that in your church's conscience. Have gracious off-ramps built into your bylaws. All right, enough of that. Here's what good elders are like. Good elders are, they're like the immune system of the church. And they, they're fighting off infections. That's why they can't be conflict-averse. I'm conflict-averse. I don't like it. (laughs) I'm a winsome guy at heart, but for the sake of the church, I have to engage in conflict, unpleasant as it is. And that's, I mean, normal people don't like conflict. It's only the weird ones that really love conflict. But that doesn't matter because it's a duty. It's like you have, that's what shepherding involves. It is fighting off infection because you're part of the immune system of, of the church. And that helps keep the body healthy. Let me read you this text. This is from 2 Samuel 23. Beautiful scripture. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, when one rules justly over men, justice, ruling in the fear of God, fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. Good elders are a blessing. Those are tenants 
that are serving the master faithfully and that are producing a fruit in the master's vineyard. That's what good elders do. So good elders are just, they rule justly. That means they're impartial. And being impartial means they're not subject to the whims of people's feelings. But they consider what's happened. Okay, I understand you're upset, but I need to hear his side of the situation. Okay, now that I've heard both sides, here's what I think is going on. And it's not an emotional thing. That's justice, impartial. And they, they value justice over expediency. Because a lot of times there's a, there's a quick way out, but the just way takes time. And time is limited. Good elders also fear God more than man. So if you were to get down to the bedrock layer of what drives a good elder, it's not going to be merely the love for the sheep. You want that there. But there has to be a deeper layer. And the bedrock layer, what's really the deepest thing, is a fear of God. He's zealous for God. He's zealous for truth. He's zealous for the, God, for the glory of God because he knows ultimately he is a man who will give account for his ministry. And that takes courage, right? It takes courage because good elders have to make unpopular decisions. One way to tell if a man has courage is, does he have enemies? If so, who? Why are they enemies? A man without enemies is a man without courage, I'll tell you that. Not because he's quarrelsome. That disqualifies him for eldership. Not because he's quarrelsome, but because he's faithful. A good elder, a good faithful elder, there's going to be a couple enemies out there. And they're enemies because he's faithful. So a godly man is going to be the natural enemy to false teachers and wolves and anyone or anything that threatens the sheep, the vineyard. So you want to, as you're evaluating elders, the prime thing to look at is his, is his home. What's his family like? So 1 Timothy 3, 4, Paul says, an elder must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. Now this is important because elders are fathers. Not just biologically, but elders are spiritual fathers in the church. What do fathers do? What does any father do? What makes him a father? He begets. He reproduces. Until he reproduces, he's just a man. But once he reproduces, now he's a father. And elders are spiritual fathers. And what you see in his household, wife and children, that's what he's begetted physically and spiritually, and then that will in turn become a template for what you can expect from his church ministry if you were to become an elder, because his wife and his children will be elevated as exemplary to the church. In most cases, a church planter, you're going to be the one to appoint the first elders. This is very hard. Get as much help as you can. Discern it as you can. And what Garrett said last night, yes and amen. Slow it down. Take as much time as you can to get it right. And then when you think you finally got it, give it another year. <laughs> Be as slow as you can. First Timothy 5 says that virtues and vice take a long time to be exposed in an elder. So look at his family. So what is his wife like? And 
this is where you got to be, you got to be discerning because it's not pleasant to do. But what's his wife like? Does she honor her husband? Does she respect him? Does she submit to him? Is she brash and bossy? How does she speak about him? What's her reputation? Does she miss church a lot? Does she participate in church? What is that like? Does she prioritize her home? Let's say she's got a job. Well, what's her job? Where does she work? Is it part-time? Is it full-time? Would that job give her problems when her husband becomes an elder? And now she is, she is more visibly and directly associated with the reputation of the church. Will that cause problems at work? What about the kids? How are the kids educated? Do you like his kids? <laughs> Maybe, maybe, maybe there's a bad one there, here and there, but like, generally speaking, do you like this guy's kids? Has he got good kids? Are they respectful? Are they disciplined? These things matter. These things do matter because that's the fruit of his personal household, which will then extrapolate to the fruit of the household of the church over which he is, will become a father. And so if his own household is not in order, then don't put him in charge of God's household because he's not ready. It could be easy to be dazzled by his talent, his intellect. could be a big tither. Let's be honest, guys. He's a big tither. And you kind of you get a sense that he's dangling that tithe check as a carrot that can get you to make him an elder. Talent is secondary. Money is secondary. Ministry skill is secondary. Fatherly, that's primary. Good elders are fatherly. So you're looking for elders that love like a father, that teach like a father, that correct like a father. And you know he's fatherly when he sacrifices himself and his reputation for the sake of the sheep. So there you go. Churches with spines, they have a culture of courage that is led by a plain-spoken pulpit, and gutsy elders. And that sounds great until you have to actually do it. And it won't be easy. There are many perils. A lot of people think that courage is like a piggy bank. It's like, I'm just going to store it up. Compound interest. I'm just going to store up my courage, and when the time is right, then I'm going to spend it. I'm going to break the bank. I'm going to spend all my courage. It's like a Hail Mary pass. But, but courage doesn't work that way. You don't build up your courage by, uh, by, by not using it. You know, say, well, I want to build up my core group first. I can't, I can't risk losing any core group members. I've only got eight people and half of them are my kids. So I need to build up my core group first. You can't wait to build up your influence in your platform and think, then I'll use it. That's how cowards think. They're kicking the can down the road. Courage is more like a muscle. You, you have to practice it. You have to exercise it. And as you exercise it, building the habit of doing the hard thing, doing the scary thing, gets a little easier. I want to read you a quote, and then I'll be done. Here's a quote from A.W. Tozer. Buckle your seatbelt. This one's, this one's a banger. All right. A.W. Tozer said this. If Christianity is to receive a rejuvenation, it must be by other means than any now being used. He wrote this like, I don't know, 70 years ago, something like that. 
if the church in the second half of this century is to recover from the injuries she suffered in the first half, there must appear a new type of preacher. The proper ruler of the synagogue type will never do. Neither will the priestly type of man who carries out his duties, takes his pay, and asks no questions. Nor the smooth-talking pastoral type who knows how to make the Christian religion acceptable to everyone. All these have been tried and found wanting. Another kind of religious leader must arise among us. He must be of the old prophet type. A man who has seen visions of God and has heard a voice from the throne. When he comes, and I pray God that there will not be one but many. He will stand in flat contradiction to everything our smirking, smooth civilization holds dear. He will contradict, denounce, and protest in the name of God and will earn the hatred and opposition of a large segment of Christendom. Such a man is likely to be lean, rugged, blunt-spoken, and a little bit angry with the world. That's Tozer. He will love Christ and the souls of men to the point of willingness to die for the glory of the one and the salvation of the other. But he will fear nothing that breathes with mortal breath. Hallelujah. Our Father and God, thank you for the beautiful and glorious calling to the the, uh, relationship with Christ, to participation in the church to belonging to particular local churches, to the planting of new churches. Father, I pray for every pastor, every church in this room, every future church, every future pastor that will be planted out of this room. Father, I ask you that you will bless them and you will steal their spines with courage so that they will be prepared to be a church that lasts not 20 years, but a generation. The churches that their grandkids will attend. Father, give us those kind of churches. We give you all glory and we pray all of this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Spirit. Amen.